0: Aloha, everybody. Welcome. Actually, we're having a birthday celebration at lunch today. As you know, all year we've been celebrating the 200th birthday of Louis Braille. So happy birthday, Louis. That's our theme for lunch today. We've got a great lineup of speakers. Um, Of course, I want to start off with thanking our sponsors once again. As you know, uh, the Braille Challenge is our big kahuna sponsor. And we have Cal State LA, University of California, Los Angeles, and the uh, Charter College of Education. We also have Humanware as our wipeout sponsor and the American Printing House. So thank you again to our sponsors. It helps make all of this happen. <laughs> also... Uh, For those of you who don't know or haven't looked in the uh, program, we do have a hospitality suite open during the hours, during the workshops. It's not open now during lunch, but it's a great place to go during the workshops and relax and chat if you want to just take a break. Uh, That's in room 724. So uh, please take advantage of that. Next, I'd like to introduce a very special guest. We have Diane Croft from National Braille Press, who's a VP of Publishing because it is thanks to them that we have the lovely Louis Braille exhibit. And she's here to tell you just a little bit more. Thank you. Diane?
1: Uh, well, it was ten years ago that Mike Meller and I went to Paris uh, on a mission. And the mission, I can't believe it's ten years ago, um, the mission was to persuade the French government to allow us to translate and publish Louis Braille's surviving letters. And I don't know about you, but I didn't even know Louis Braille had letters. Um, They were sitting in a box in France, and Mike Meller, who was formerly the editor of Matilda Ziegler magazine, had discovered them. And it was really, he made it his life quest to get those letters um, translated. But he'd been over a half dozen times, and they weren't budging. So we cooked up this scheme, and I said, well... I'll be your editor, and National Braille Press will be the publisher, and we'll go over like a couple big shots, and we'll try again. And it worked. So uh, when we went over, this was uh, in the year April of 2000, uh, we were celebrating that night, and we thought, this is just so fantastic. We'll publish these letters and make them available um, to people in the United States or English-speaking countries. But what we didn't know is the very next day we had an even bigger surprise. Um, we had lunch with the curator at the Louis Braille Museum and she took us back to her house afterward and she brought out four long cases. Uh, and in those cases were over 100 slides taken about the artifacts related to Louis Braille's life, including the spot where his mother did the laundry all the way to a picture of his math book. Um, And she had over 10 years taking these pictures with the idea that she'd produce a book one day. But she never got the funds. So that day National Borough Press also signed a contract to get the rights not only to do the letters but to um, show these images for the first time ever. Um, And so Mike had a big new assignment, which was to write the biography to go with it. Uh, It took six years. Uh, We didn't actually publish the book until 2006. Um, and some of you, I hope, know it. Louis Braille, A Touch of Genius by Mike Meller. And um, it's won all kinds of awards. And we had a book party in 2006. We were really tired, six years of this book. And we celebrated and we thought, well, we're finished now. But then Louis Braille's Bicentennial came up. So what happened is we started to get requests from around the world. And they wanted to translate the book into their language. So went back to France because we had exclusive rights at this time. And it took another year and a half for them to agree. And because of Louis Brel 's Bicentennial, they agreed that we could allow any country to translate the book into their language, but only during Louis Brel 's Bicentennial year. So it will end this December 31. But I'm very pleased to say that there is an edition being translated in Poland, in Germany, in Italy, in China, in Japan, in Africa, um, Sri Lanka, I might be missing some, and so on. So uh, essentially we're sending the images and the text uh, to these countries, and this year they'll be producing their own edition and, and getting that out to the world. So at the same time we negotiated this contract for foreign language rights, I asked if we could use the images to produce a traveling exhibit of Louis Braille, which you see out there in the lobby. It's actually a very simple um, exhibit and we did not really produce it with this audience in mind. You already know about Louis Braille. Our intention was to get it into large public places, malls, large public libraries, museums, universities, where people wouldn't take the time to go and and learn something about Louis Braille. But if they were passing by and it looked interesting, they might stop. And it's been very successful. We actually had to produce two exhibits because we were booked immediately. Um, For example, just came back from the Atlanta Historic Museum. They knew nothing about Louis Braille. It's going to Baruch College or University Next in New York. Um, It's been at MIT. Um, When I went to take it down after it had been there for a month, um, the woman in, in the student services, she said, oh, I wish you could have been here when it opened. She said, I came to work, and there was a long line down the hall and around the corner, and I thought, what is this? And it was the exhibit. And I can't help but think those brilliant engineers thought that Louis Braille had a pretty good mind, and they wanted to see how it worked. So, um, and when it was at the Boston State House, what I was so pleased, I was able to sit and observe to see, does anybody stop? And the reason it's, you know, very brief and very much to the point, his whole life in 10 panels, is um, people do stop and they did read it and they moved on. And just at the State House alone, for the month it was there, they estimate about 30,000 people passed through the exhibit area. So we think that tens of thousands of people across the country are learning a little bit about Louis Braille. Um, so I just wanted to mention, too, if any of you are interested in having the exhibit, we do ask that you um, have it in a good public arena for a month if you can. We don't like to ship it more often than that. But I will say that several organizations have very successfully planned donor events around the exhibit. For example, the Hadley School had a very successful Bastille Day. And they had the French consulate come in and uh, a lot of French dignitaries. And Mike came and he spoke and signed books. And they had a wonderful you know, French wine, French music, French food, uh, really nice event. So if people are interested, you can come see us in the exhibit hall. Um, Mike has also been traveling nonstop since 06. I mean, all over the world. Um, he's been invited to uh, sign his book. He just came back from South Africa, and I think this week he's in Japan. Um, so he's certainly been a Brown ambassador. And um, finally, I just want to mention the country I forgot, but it was the very first country to translate the book was France. And uh, we were very pleased because they sent for a copy. And the people who sent for a copy, Mike said, it's the most prestigious French publisher in France. They do all the full-color coffee table books for the museums. And um, so they translated it word for word. And we know they checked every source. And obviously Mike did a brilliant job because they didn't change any of it. And we very much feel that we gave France their son back to them through this book. And when my boss went to the um, Pantheon, it was right there in the gift shop, which is where Louis Braille uh, remains today. So I like to think that one outcome of this project has been that um, we have sent Louis Braille out to the world where he belongs. Thank you.
0: Right now, I'd like to take this opportunity to introduce Stuart Wittenstein, Superintendent of the California School for the Blind.
2: Uh, Good afternoon, everybody. It's a great pleasure to be here today. Um, And uh, before um, I get started with my uh, introduction of our featured speaker, I just wanted to mention something we're very proud of. California School for the Blind is celebrating our 150th year of service to blind children in California. Um, the, as you heard last night from the speakers, the Getting in Touch with Literacy Conference is a very special conference to so many of us to get together and speak with one another and discuss the issues of literacy for the population of kids and adults we serve. Is, it's just so important. And to be in the same room with so many people who are passionate about this um, and want to want to do good and want to do the right thing, it's a terrific experience. I've had um, – I was actually – at the first uh, um, getting in touch with literacy conference it was actually my first national presentation. Scared the hell out of me, um, and I, and people walked in the room who I'd heard of and I'd read their books and I'd read their articles, and and I was terrified, and um, and my dissertation advisor was in the room, and um, and, and that's what I was presenting on, of course that material, and um, and the you know the good news is. Some of those folks are some of the best friends I have now. Uh, that's the kind of field this is that you can um, you can meet these folks and uh, have lunch with them and 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 realize that you share values with them. And it's a, it's an exciting exciting field, and, and it, this is an exciting conference. And one of the great things about it, because it doesn't belong to any specific agency, is when you put one of these on. And if you haven't had one in your area, I encourage you to think about doing that. You get, to, you get to form a committee with all of the stakeholders and constituents and people who are interested in literacy for blind people in your area, and you form alliances and friendships with those folks that go well beyond what you've had before. So it's a terrific opportunity. Um, as you heard last night, uh, we hosted it in 99 in San Francisco. And I just wanted to, uh, f- on the record here, Mentioned that uh, the chair of that committee was Steve Goodman from California School for the Blind. And uh, Steve did uh, a wonderful job uh, in putting that together. And, um, you know, uh, my name was mentioned a couple of times. It's great to be like the CEO because you get credit for all the wonderful things your staff do. Um, but, uh, basically all I do is I say yes and I, and I, and I let folks free to, to use their skills and their talents. And so, and I get to have the credit, which is terrific. So, um, but, um, I'm here today to introduce to you a legend, a, a celebrity in our midst. I've had the great pleasure of hanging out with the celebrity for a couple of days now and having people come up and want to take pictures with them and hand them letters from their second grader. Who found out that, you know, that this Nemeth code that I'm studying was actually invented by a human who's still, who's still alive, you know, and, and my teacher's gonna meet him? Isn't that cool? And so it was funny when we checked in at the hotel, I met, I met Abe at the airport, and when we checked in at the hotel, um, they couldn't spell his name at the front desk, and I'm thinking, how come they don't know his name? I mean, he's famous! You know, and uh, but he—he he is, you know, he is a famous guy. He's a great speaker and great uh, storyteller, and I think you're going to enjoy hearing from him today on on a serious topic—the evolution of Braille. Um, let me just tell you a couple of things. His bio is in the is in the program, so I'm not going to spend time on that. But some of the things that I'm amazed at is that he taught math in a university for thirty years to sighted people and and wrote calculus on a chalkboard without ever being able to see what he was writing. I mean it's remarkable and I still don't understand. He, I asked him about it today you know, in more detail and he explained it to me and I still don't get how he did it, you know. Um but um um there is a there is a cautionary tale in in Abe Nemeth's story too, for those of us who have ever sat down with a youngster who is blind or visually impaired or with their family and suggested that they be realistic in their career goals. Because Abe Nemeth was told over and over again it's not realistic for you to be a mathematician. It's not realistic for you to teach math. And um, we have to really be careful that we might be setting limitations on our students when we tell them to be realistic. Because here is somebody who said, but that's what I want to do. That's my passion. That's who I am and made it happen. And so let's be sure when we're advising our students and our clients that we're open to the possibility that they can pretty much do anything if they put their minds to it. They're just going to do it differently perhaps than the sighted world is used to. And, um, and he's, he's living proof of that. Um, now, Most of us who've taught the Nemeth code have taught the pieces of it that our kids needed at that particular time. When I was an itinerant teacher, I would teach a fourth grader some of the uh, Nemeth symbols, and and then maybe the next day I would teach a tenth grader, you know, some of the Nemeth symbols. And I never really understood the whole code because I was getting these pieces of it. And some of it I had some real questions about, well, why is he doing it this way and why isn't it that way? And then I had the opportunity at Teachers College Columbia to teach a semester-long Nemeth Code class. And then I had to learn the whole code for the first time. And, and guess what? It's a beautiful, elegant solution, and it all makes sense when you learn the whole code. Um, so I mean, who, who of us has time to learn the whole code? Well, you know, hopefully we do, and hopefully we, we get to see the beauty in it. Um, it, it, it. It has educated now a couple of generations of uh blind and visually impaired kids to the beauty of mathematics and um who better than to educate us on mathematics than a man passionate about mathematics who was born to it and who uh who wouldn't let the world say no you can't do that and that is our guest speaker today Dr. Abraham Nemeth
0: And
3: you getting a standing over I there. I realize that wow Thank you all very much. I'll begin by telling you a dream that my mother had that she confided in me. In her dream, I had just finished addressing a group of several thousand people, and I was getting a tumultuous standing ovation. (laughs) And behind her, there were two women talking, and one woman said to the other, wasn't that a wonderful speech? And the other woman Responded impatiently, yes, yes, but who's the mother of that boy?
4: <laughs> <laughs>
3: anyway, uh, I'll begin to tell you I was born totally and congenitally blind. And today people ask me, Are you, have you been blind all your life? And I tell them, not yet. Anyway, I had very supportive family. I had two wonderful parents. I had four grandparents, all of whom I knew, and they were all close to me that I could visit all the time. And I had marvelous uncles and aunts and cousins, and we were all one happy family. And we went out of the way to help each other uh, to do whatever was necessary to do. My father was in business with his brother and he was in the garment industry in New York City and this was in the deep depression days and they did not make a living hardly but when they had a a slightly better week my father would steal his sister's pocketbook and put a five dollar bill into it and she never knew how it got there. She thought it was an oversight. She had overlooked it. She never found out how it got there until 25 years later. Anyway, What my father taught me. When I was very young, before I even went to school, my father would take me where we were going each time via a different route because he wanted to instill in me a sense of direction. And he would say to me things like, we are now walking west, and when we come to the corner we're going to make a left turn, and then we will be walking south. Anyway, uh, my father let me touch the raised lettering on. Um, he let me touch the raised lettering on mailboxes, police boxes, fire fire alarm boxes, and um, he let me touch the raised lettering on automobile plates, you know, license plates. He even let me touch the neon tubing on the outside of store windows, so I would learn the. Um, uh, shapes of script letters and he um, uh, well, bought me big wooden blocks with raised letters and he bought me rubber stamps with raised letters and uh, all kinds of things like that uh, what my father did my father really literally put me in touch with literacy <laughs> My mother did not take a back seat either. She would send me to the grocery store to buy um, a list of groceries, six or seven items, when I was a child. And uh, I had not, not only the uh, items, but the quantities I had to memorize. And I had to pay for it and bring back the correct change. But she wasn't afraid of doing that. The grocery store did not require me to cross the street. I just had to walk to the corner, turn left, walk three stores down the that block, and go into the grocery store and uh, the grocer was my grandfather, so
4: <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> and it, anyway, when it was time for me to go to school i uh, I knew all the print letters because of what my father did. And I knew the shapes of all of the print letters. And then I learned Braille. And I became a good Braille reader. And I attended the regular New York City public school system. And we had a resource teacher there, a uh, Mrs. Roberts. And she um, taught me Braille. And at the age of eight or nine, I was already a good uh, typist. And she had a globe of the world and uh, all gr- it was made by the American Printing House, I believe. I mean, it was a great big thing. You could not put your arms around it. The water areas were smooth, and the land areas were roughened and raised, and the mountains were raised even higher. And I used to get a kick of running my fingernail through the Panama Canal. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um... I attended the regular classes, history, geography, spelling, arithmetic, whatever. But when it came to visual things like penmanship or art, uh, I went back to the resource room and learned the skills of blindness. And um, from time to time they asked um, us to read from the textbook and so when it came my term, Too dumb to know that I was supposed to read slower if you read Braille, so I didn't read slower. (laughs) Uh. Anyway, uh, I went through the regular classes, and then I attended a regular New York City high school, Evander Childs High School in the Bronx, and there I also had a resource teacher. He was cited. And he was the only sighted person that I ever knew who could read braille with his fingers. He made it his business to be able to do that. Um, In high school is when I developed a passion for mathematics. And he was a mathematics teacher. He taught a few math courses in high school in addition to being a resource teacher. So in high school, I took four years of mathematics. And as the courses became more and more advanced, The Braille method for representing the notation was getting more increasingly clumsy and inadequate. So I just coped with it as best I could. And then came college. And I wanted a major in math. But I had counselors. And those counselors said, what are you crazy? (laughs) wanted me to major in psychology. That was more suitable for a blind person. Math, where would you get, you'd have, there's no way of writing it in Braille and people would have to read it to you and they are hard to find and you'd have to pay them and so on. So I was, um, I was told by this counselor to be a psychologist. So being a compliant young man, um, I took all the psychology courses. Many of you are teachers and have taken some psychology courses, so you all name know the name of Abraham Maslow. Abraham Maslow was my professor, my friend, and my advisor. And he ran seminars in his home for us psychology majors at 1232 Ocean Avenue next to the campus of Brooklyn College. And when his wife gave birth to their second daughter, Us guys at the seminar chipped in, and we bought him a six-month subscription to diaper service. (laughs) Anyway, I continued majoring in psychology, and I went to Columbia University, a very prestigious university, and I studied psychology, and I finally got a master's degree in psychology from there. Anyway... Upon graduation, of course, I went looking for a job, but I couldn't find a job. Meanwhile, I was already a married man, and just like some guys take one night off a week to play poker or bowling or whatever they do, I went back to Brooklyn College and took some more math courses. And um, anyway, uh, my wife said to me in, in in Plain language, she said, tell me the truth. Wouldn't you rather be an unemployed mathematician than an unemployed psychologist?
4: <laughs>
3: <laughs> and from then on, I always thought myself as a mathematician rather than as a psychologist. Meanwhile, one night a week, uh, I told you I went to Brooklyn College and I stayed after class to volunteer. The veterans were coming home from the war in 1946, and they had taken Calculus I and they were eligible to take Calculus two. Now, you figure out how much Calculus one they remembered after a war. And so we had a volunteer session set up, and we had a large room, and the walls of the room were nothing but blackboards all around. Each veteran was assigned a panel of the blackboard and he was told to read the problem of the book and write as much of the solution as he could. So I went around and I tapped a young man on the shoulder and I asked him, "Uh, read me the problem in your book. And uh, he did. And I said, what did you write on the board? He said, nothing. Anyway. Uh, I began to talk him through the problem, showed him how to uh, approach the thing logically. And um, at the right time, I picked up the chalk and I wrote the first formula on the board. Remember, my father had uh, instilled me, uh, he got me in touch with literacy. So I was able to do that. And after a little more talking, I wrote the second uh, formula on the board then the third one and so on. What I did not know was that I was being observed by the um, chairman of the math department. One Friday night I received a telegram. My brother signed for it and he said it's from the math department chairman. I said, good lord, what did I do? (laughs) Anyway my brother opened the telegram and he read it to me. It said one of the staff members in the department had become ill would be out for the semester and would I take his classes. And that's how I got my first job teaching mathematics. <laughs> anyway, from, uh, um, uh, I kept developing the Nemeth Code as I took all of these uh, courses. It was only a private code and I did it only in self-defense because I, I, I wanted to do well in those math courses. I worked at the American Foundation for the Blind for seven years, from 1944 to 1951. And I did unskilled labor there. I was counting phonograph needles into 25 to an envelope and sealing the envelope, and putting the envelope in a container with talking book records and strapping up the container and so on. Anyway, uh, there was a gentleman at the foundation, his name was Dr. Clifford Witcher. He had already his Ph.D. in physics from Columbia University, and he wanted to know if I had a table of integrals. I said, yeah, I have a table of integrals, but it's in a private code, you won't be able to read it. Well, he said, I'm desperate, teach me your private code. So I taught him my private code, and he liked it. In those days, the grandparent organization of the current banner was called the Joint Uniform Braille Committee. The word, the word joint indicated that it was uh, staffed jointly by British representatives and American representatives. And they had a math subcommittee, and this Dr. Witcher was on the math subcommittee. And he said, hey, I came across this guy who gave me a private code, showed me a table of integrals, and it really works good. Why don't you ask him to submit his code? So they asked me to write up a short a version of the code. And I wrote it up. I'm sorry to say it wasn't as short as they wanted. (laughs) Anyway, I was invited to present it one morning at the Helen Keller room at the American Foundation for the Blind on 15 West 16th Street those days. And after many questions, they dismissed me from the room they would consider it. They invited me back for lunch and after lunch the code was adopted and it became the first American Nemeth code in 1952. Since then it went through several revisions. It was revised in 1955 when the new math came into play. And then again, there was a revision in 1965, and the final revision was in uh, 1972, which is the current revision. Well, meanwhile, I sent out maybe 250 letters applying for a job as a mathematician. Uh, Mostly I got uh, letters noncommittal. We do not have a position open at this time for your qualifications, but we will keep your letter on file and we'll let you know and so and so on and so on. I got some hustle letters. We don't understand how a person who is blind can do the, conduct the mathematics courses which we offer. But I did get two letters of, uh, uh, requesting an interview, one from the University of Detroit and one from the University of Colorado in Boulder, Colorado. The University of Detroit had a a track leading to tenure, the University of Colorado did not. So I went to the University of Detroit, they asked me to bring my wife for the interview, which I did, and I was careful to let them know that I was going on to another interview, I wanted them to know that. Anyway, they told me at the end of the interview that they would let me know by the end of the week, but 7.30 in the morning I received a telephone call And the Dean of Science and Engineering apologized for calling me so early, but he said, we wanted you to know that you had the job at the University of Detroit if you wanted, and we called you so early so that you could cancel your trip to Colorado. (laughs) So I moved to Detroit with my wife, and We rented a uh, six-room apartment, which was found for us by the math chairman of the department, and there was a housing shortage. And the week before classes began, I got a call from the housing department at the university would I rent a room to a student. Well, my wife and I were not uh, anxious to do anything like that, but I was very much on probation and so I couldn't say no. Shortly after he arrived, he came home one night so drunk that um, he uh, was incommunicado. The following morning, however, we gave him a strict lecture and we told him if he ever came home in that condition again, he was to go somewhere else to sleep it off. Well, not long after, there was homecoming week and they were crowning a, a homecoming queen and there was building floats and he was drinking more beer than building floats and he got drunk. But somehow he remembered he was not to come home. So he went to a home that he thought was his friend's house. It was, in fact, a stranger's home. He knocked on the door, and when the gentleman, who, uh, proprietor of the home, opened the door, saw the condition of this guy, and didn't let him in. A little scuffle ensued, and the wife inside saw what was going on, and she quickly called the police, and they came and took him downtown. Uh, The following morning, uh, we were called by the police to come down and take this guy home. So we went down, and uh, the police began to question me. Are you a professor of math at the university? I said, yes. Do you uh, teach math courses there? I said, yes. (laughs) Do, 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 Do you write on the blackboard? I said, yes. Well, they said, this guy was telling us about you, and if you didn't corroborate his story, we were going to book him for a sanity test. (laughs) Anyway, uh, in the course, I was promoted through the ranks. I came in as an instructor, and then I became an assistant professor, and then an associate professor, and then a full professor. And I taught all the branches of math courses, calculus and differential equations, and topology and numerical analysis and number theory and I know, all kinds of things like that. University of Detroit is a Jesuit university, and um, uh, the Jesuit fathers uh, accepted me as one of their own. They shared all their all, all their jokes, all their religious jokes with me. Uh, one religious joke they shared with me, um, And Jesus was giving a sermon, and he said, "Uh, let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. And all of a sudden, a big rock came hurtling through the air and landed at his feet. And he looked up, he said, come on, Mother, cut that out. (laughs) Anyway, in due course, I received my Ph.D. in mathematics from Columbia University. And... uh, That was in 1964, so that's 45 years ago now. Um, There's a cute story that I like to tell about um, another physicist. I wasn't a physicist, I was a mathematician. But Dr. Robert A. Milliken was a physicist and he had done some wonderful work on cosmic rays and he won a Nobel Prize for that. And uh, one night he was awakened uh, by the ringing of his telephone and um, he heard his mate answering the phone, yes, does. this is Dr. Milliken's uh, residence. A long pause. Well, no, he's not the kind of a doctor who could do you any good. <laughs> In
4: 1972,
3: I got a call from the State Department. Uh, do you want to go to the Soviet Union? I said, the Soviet Union, what would what, what I do there? Well, they heard that you devised this code for writing mathematics and it spread beyond the borders of America. It's now adopted in Canada and New Zealand and a few other countries and they want to know about it. So I said, okay, I'm willing to go and tell them, but uh, who's going to pay for this here junket? <laughs> so um, they said the Russian government was willing to pay all the expenses for me and my wife and so we went and um, came home. Four years later I get another call. You want to go back to the Soviet Union? I said, why would I go back? I told them all about the name of the code. There's nothing more to tell. <laughs> well, they said, I will try to relate to you the words that, I, that we received. They want to know how the hell a blind person can access the screen of a computer. So four years later, in 1976, I went back and I told them how the hell a blind person could access the
4: <laughs>
3: I became very well known to the blindness community, and one day I get a call, and the caller on the other end was none other than the likes of Governor Engler, the governor of Michigan, a Republican. And... He said, to me, I would like to appoint you to serve on the Michigan Commission for the Blind. So I made all the right noises. I said, I'm privileged and I'm honored that you're willing to appoint me and I will do my best to serve the state of Michigan. He said, I'm not supposed to ask you, but I'm curious to know what is your uh, party affili- uh, affiliation. I said, well, I'm a registered Democrat. Oh, he said, in that case, I'm going to appoint you to be the chairman.
4: <laughs>
3: so I served as chairman of the Michigan Commission for the Blind, and as I told you, I was um, already familiar with print and from early childhood. And then uh, by using the Opticon, I became familiar with all the nuances of mathematical notation. I knew how fractions were st- stacked vertically, and I knew how superscripts and subscripts were written in smaller type, elevated or depressed relative to the li- baseline of writing, and I knew all the Greek letters and uh, all of that stuff. And uh, I became—I an, mean, I—I I became knowledgeable in the print methods of writing mathematics and I was always also knowledgeable in Braille and it began to occur to me. Why do we have two number systems in Braille and only one number system in print? The two systems in Braille is upper numbers for literary code and drop numbers in the Nemeth code and in the computer code. And why is there just one set of punctuation marks in print and three sets of punctuation marks in Braille? And why are there so many codes in Braille? A math code and a literary code and a computer code and a chemistry code and each code with appendices and so on. And why do we maintain a basic Braille literary code that is so replete with low expectations to Braille readers, such as all the following. Accent signs. We show a reader that a letter is accented with a dot four in front of a letter. But he has no idea which accent sign it is. Is it an acute accent, a grave accent, a tilde accent, a sedilla? He doesn't know. And is it above the letter or below the letter that it affects? He doesn't know. He just knows that it's an accent sign. Uh, Arrows. There are no arrows in the literary code. But if you ever read an English grammar book, when they do sentence analysis... They have arrows pointing to the various parts of the sentences. And they are commonplace in English grammar textbooks when showing sentence diagrams. And we don't have any in literary braille. Comparison signs. The basic comparison signs that are commonplace every day is equals, less than, greater than. They're not any part of the literary code. Currency signs. We have a dollar sign and a cent sign. But there's also a franc and a yen and a ruble and a deutschmark, and we can't represent any of those. And Greek letters. Uh, These are found in the names of sororities and fraternities. And if you're a social science major and you deal with statistical analysis, you come across with some things that deviate by one sigma or two sigmas or three sigmas or whatever. No way of writing that in the literary code. Grouping signs, it's incomplete. We have parentheses, we have brackets. No braces in the literary code. No angle brackets in the literary code. And parentheses, the same character is used for the left parenthesis and for the right parenthesis. Legal signs, only recently have the signs for copyright and trademark and registered have been approved by Banner. They happen to conflict with Sim's life signs in the Nemeth Code, but it didn't take that into regard. And there are other legal signs which are not represented at all. Operation signs. There are no operation signs. You can't write a plus sign or a minus sign or a time sign or a multiplication sign, and they must be presented like they were spoken, which is a very clumsy and unacceptable method of doing that. And reference signs in the current literary code, all the print reference signs are morphed into an an asterisk. But there are all kinds of signs, daggers and finger pointings and other kinds of reference signs which are not representable in the literary code. And simple fractions, all you can write in the literary code is numerical fractions like one-half or one-quarter. But if you want to write A plus B over C, you can't be sure whether A plus B is the numerator or whether the fraction B over C is added to A. Simple radicals, even the cheapest three dollar calculator has a square root sign but you can't represent the square root sign in the literary code. And simple subscripts and superscripts common chem- chemical formulas like H2O and CO2 can't be represented in the literary code. And um, A piece of carpeting which measures 30 square yards, you know, YD with a superscript 2, can't be represented in the literary code either. And so I began to develop NUBS, N-U-B-S, which stands for Nemeth Uniform Braille System. Why did I do it? First of all, I wanted to correct all those blemishes that I just talked to you about in the literary code. And uh, and second of all, there were some errors that I made in the development of the Nimitz code and I wanted um, uh, to correct s- some uh, those mistakes which I made in the Nimitz code. In other words, I wanted to atone for some of my youthful indiscretions. <laughs> uh, let me tell you some of the advantages of nubs. Nubs, it's like print. There's no literary code, there's no math code, there's no computer code, there's no chemistry code, there's no special code of any kind. It's just one code. The current Braille system requires, like I told you before, two sets of numbers and three sets of punctuation marks. NUBS requires only one set of numbers and only uh one set of punctuation marks with three minor exceptions. Uh, it does not delete any contractions from the grade two and it does not add any contractions to grade two. It addresses issues in which the lit- literary code is deficient uh, such as the ones I just mentioned to you and I don't like the word code. Code has a connotation of secrecy Of privileged access and of restricted capabilities. Uh, The military regards anyone who can uh, send and receive Morse code at 30 words a minute as a high speed operator, 30 words a minute, imagine. So in 1990, Dr. Tim Cranmer, he's dead now, but Dr. Tim Cranmer and I uh, wrote a letter to Banner expressing the need for a uniform Braille code. Uh, We pointed out uh, all the above blemishes of the current literary code and uh, Banner uh, sponsored project took off in a different direction than I had envisioned. Nevertheless, I continue to work privately on NUBS and the first version of NUBS is now complete uh, when I went to New Mexico to present our proposal to the Braille Authority, my wife didn't want to go. She said, that's too technical for me. But then we began to get letters that there's going to be hot air balloon races. <laughs> <laughs> and it's gonna, we're going to be taken to dinner in a cable car that crosses a chasm and will take us to a restaurant of elevation 12,000 or 13,000 feet or something like that. My wife says, hey, I want to go. Well, Fred Schroeder, who was in charge of the commission at that time, told us that there's no room in the hotel. Those balloon races attract everybody. Nevertheless, my wife decided to go. She said, I'll find something. So she went. When we got there, my wife struck up a good relationship with Claudel Stocker, who was the predecessor of Mary Lou Stark at the Library of Congress, and um, invited my wife to share the room with her. It turned out that she shared not only the room, but the bed, because it was only a one king-size bed. (laughs) Anyway, I had already made arrangements to bunk with Tim Cranmer. And so, at the end of the first evening, I walked my wife to her room. And I said to her, you know, it's been 15 years since I took a girl home, kissed her good night, and went home by myself. <laughs> anyway, the first version of Nobs is now complete. It is presented in two parts. The first part deals uh, with the literary code, with a view to correcting all those blemishes that I talked to you about. The second part... Uh, deals with the scientific, particularly the mathematical side of uh, Braille notation. The second part is just an extension of the first part. Everything in the first part remains valid in the second part. Here are some of the NUBS features uh, that I told you about. It has an explicitly stated set of principles and guidelines. Most of these uh, principles and guidelines are are those Uh, which were contained in the charge by Banner uh, to the uh, Uniform Braille Code Project and others were added as the result of experience. Um, There is no Grade two contractions change. None are deleted, none are added. It's heavily based on the Nemeth Code which means that current libraries of Nemeth Code textbooks are not obsolete and um, people who go to NUBS will not require extensive recertification. Um, attention has been given to both forward and back translation by computers and some of the computer translation has already been implemented. There are teacher alerts um, throughout NUBS when uh, Braille readers know uh, what the print notation is like they can more easily interpret what the Braille is telling them. Banna is currently evaluating uh, nubs. Um, samples were presented to uh, volunteer readers both at the uh, National Federation of the Blind Convention and the American Council of the Blind Convention this last July. It was uh, samples were already were already presented to the National Rail Association in Eugene, Oregon, two weeks ago. I was there. And now there was an announcement this morning that they are asking for volunteers here to get reactions uh, uh, for nubs. So uh, these reactions and those that come are in the hands of Banna. Banner. And uh, NUBS itself can now be downloaded from a website called Braille2000. B R A I L L E 2000. That is a website owned by Bob Stepp. And as you probably know, Braille2000 is a competitor to Duxbury. And the full documentation of NUBS can be downloaded from there, both print and in Braille and there is also a condensed version for those who are interested in the overall structure of NUBS but who do not care uh, to delve into the details and there are also uh, handout versions which were distributed at various organizations in, including uh, to this organization two years ago in Florida and uh, I would be glad to answer any questions you have. I have to tell you that in my growing up, I had wonderful parents, like I told you. I had wonderful grandparents, all of whom I knew. I had wonderful aunts and cousins and all kinds of relations, and we all worked for each other. I grew up in an environment of pure love. I had wonderful teachers, resource teachers who taught me Braille and all the skills of blindness. I had two wonderful wives, one who died after 26 years. She died exactly on the date of our 26th anniversary. And I married a second wife who already had a few children who became my adopted children and grandchildren. And. I had all kinds of wonderful teachers in school and everything good has happened to me in my life. The Lord has overwhelmed me with his kindness. I thank you all for listening to me and there's going to be a question and answer session after this luncheon and I thank you all very much.
0: Thank you very much, Dr. Mammoth. That was a, an honor, a privilege, and a joy. I think everybody very, very much enjoyed that.